guys and a massive welcome back to the new series of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, episode number two of series two. Or a welcome if you've never joined me before. Either way, it means the world and thanks very much all. I'm Paul, the show host and true crime enthusiast of the podcast, and it's a show that looks at and recounts the more obscure and the forgotten cases from the shores of the UK. Many you may not be familiar with, and others that if you are, well then I hope that you can still listen in while you're having a cuppa or whatever you do while you're listening to podcasts. I hope this episode finds you all well and having or had a good week. Mine's been pretty busy as usual, but that's exactly how I like it. Thanks very much for all the Patreon support and continued reviews that the show's been getting. With my newest Patreon supporters, Andy Parrish, Marie Harris, Debs Fulton, Josie Miller, and some fellow podcast hosts who we've all sort of started following each other and supporting each other. And that's Bonnie at Whining About Crime, which is the promo I played last week. Kate at Ignorance Was Bliss, the people at Stat, the people at Strictly Homicide, and the people at the Getting Off podcast as well. Thanks very much, guys. Your support means the world, as always, and it's very, very much appreciated. There are now three bonus episodes up for any supporters interested in hearing more from the show for the very reasonable price of less than the cost of a pint each month. I've just rehashed my Patreon prices as well, make things a bit more accessible. Plus, there is other stuff available. There is even a bit of a location video for the latest episode available for subscribers. And I'd like to start doing more stuff like that. Perhaps I'll look into the possibility of a monthly video check-in and an update on things coming up in the podcast. One thing that is coming up is that I'd like to release as a bit of a bonus is an Ask Me Anything mini episode. So if you have any pressing questions about the show, the cases featured or anything within reason that you'd like to know, I should be putting an invite out on my social media accounts. And if you have a question to help make part of the episode, then please by all means get in touch. It'll be a month or two away, so there's plenty of time for it. And as usual, the links to get in touch or support the show can be found in the show notes this week. Now I have a couple more great podcast promos for your audio pleasure this week. The shows that I'm more than happy to feature the hosts themselves promoting their pods here. You can find both pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from, where you're listening to me here from. And if you already subscribe to one or each of these, then I admire your tastes. This week it's my pleasure to bring you the promos from Minna at True Crime Finland and Kate at the Ignorance Was Bliss podcast. I'd best hand you over to them. Hi, this is Minna from True Crime Finland. Ah, Finland, so peaceful and safe. There isn't even any crime there, right? Wrong. Join me every two weeks in discovering the dark side of the land of a thousand lakes. Everything from human trafficking and Ponzi schemes to double homicide and child abuse. From the forgotten and lesser known to the legendary and infamous Finnish cases, the podcast will be sure to offer something for everyone. You can find True Crime Finland on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcasts. Murder, obsession, addiction, panic, 
schizophrenia, mania, violence, survival. I'm Kate. As a forensic psychologist and crisis clinician, I was in the middle of a lot of those experiences. It was my job to come up with an explanation for how the hell did we get here and what happens next. And I'd like to share some of those stories with you. Just make sure that you're ready. Because sometimes after I'm done, you'll think, I felt better before I knew that. You can find Ignorance Was Bliss under IWB Podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, or on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. So what do you think about that then? They sound good or what? Wherever you get your shows from, then if you haven't tried them, please give them a whirl, and I hope that you love them, because they really are both fantastic. This week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, we feature two cases that are a bit away from the norm of the show, yet I hope you, like I have, find the cases fascinating and are entertained by the episode. We go back to the late 1980s for the first case, and the late 1990s for the second case. Now there's quite a bit to take in with each, and some of the details contained within and described in the episode may disturb the listener, with also descriptions of a sexual nature, as well as explicit language, very explicit language included also. So use your discretion please guys. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as we look back first at the case of the baby food blackmailer. On the 3rd of August 1988, a package was received that was opened by the secretary of Mr John Simmons, the then managing director of Pedigree Pet Foods Limited at the company's head office in Melton Mowbray in Leicestershire. Now there's nothing unusual there, the heads of companies receive many such letters each day, but this one was different. Inside the package was what appeared at first glance to be a standard tin of Pedigree Chum dog food, attached to which was an envelope. The envelope contained a photocopy of a typewritten letter, the content of which is reproduced as follows. This is a demand to Pedigree Pet Foods to pay £100,000 per year in order to prevent their product being contaminated with toxic substances. The accompanying tin of Pedigree Chum has had its contents mixed with toxic chemicals. These chemicals were selected because they are colourless, odourless and highly toxic. They are virtually undetectable to a pet owner before feeding. If payment is not forthcoming from Pedigree Pet Foods of Mars Limited, a large number of similarly contaminated tins will appear on retailer shelves throughout Great Britain. Initially only Pedigree Chum dog food will be poisoned. When sales of that product have slumped, another will be sabotaged if payment has not been received. The process will be repeated until payment is finally made or your company dissolves. Its fate will then be an example to other pet food manufacturers. When your company agrees to pay, it will place an announcement in the personal columns of the Daily Telegraph, which will read, Sandra, happy birthday darling, love John. Now every major company receives crank letters, and indeed threatening ones, they could be from disgruntled ex-employees, upset customers, or general unpleasant people who seek nothing more than getting a kick from sending mail such as this. Occasionally threats such as these will be made but they're few and far between and are rarely serious. But this one was different. This wasn't just a rambling empty threat or the work of a crank. The tin that the envelope had been attached to had had the label steamed off and had then been cut open. 
it had indeed been contaminated with poison as the author had described, then resealed, and then the label had been reattached, covering the incision. It was so well done that it appeared like any of the other tins that would be on any particular shelf in any shop or supermarket. The letter had gone on to lay out that if this ransom was not paid over a five-year period, then five of these contaminations a day would be made at supermarkets throughout Britain. The media would be informed through a series of coded telephone calls and letters would be sent to the editors of major British newspapers. Over the five-year period, the money was to be paid into a series of building society accounts to be nominated, and the author gave a deadline of the 1st of December 1988 for payment to begin. Leicestershire police were contacted, and after ascertaining that this threat was real, and this wasn't just another hoax or a crank, an investigation was launched. A psychological profiler that we've mentioned before on the show actually, Dr Paul Britton, was also brought in to assist in the strategy of the investigation as well as to create a profile of the blackmailer. It was quickly established that this had been carefully planned and that the blackmailer had spent considerable time researching the target and refining the long-term plan of the blackmail. There had been no trace of forensics or fingerprints available from the can or the letter and as it was a photocopy of the actual typed letter, there was no way to analyse the typeface with a view to matching it to a suspect typewriter. The paper and envelope were of such an available type as to be a dead end, and the postmark showed that it had been posted in central London some days before. It had been addressed in person to John Simmons rather than the managing director or senior executive, so the blackmailer had researched the target well, knowing who was the person at the top of the chain and the person to address all correspondence to. This all suggested a methodical blackmailer and one who was aware of investigative techniques and was a committed and realistic one working alone. The sum asked for was a feasible sum for a company the size of Pedigree to pay. It's a life-changing amount and by staggering it over five years it would ensure a comfortable annual payment to anyone over this time. This showed an offender driven by greed, one who was more mature in years and one who was patient and took time to pre-plan and refine. The contamination to the can had been done by using a widely available yet deadly toxin and by someone with a clear knowledge of and precision to use a soldering iron. It was done with such skill that it showed the blackmailer had practiced and refined doing this and was patient and prepared for a long drawn out campaign. It was thought likely that the blackmailer was more mature in years, either unemployed or retired, and although intelligent, hadn't done well for themselves. Greed was likely the motivating factor here, but there was also a degree of that the blackmailer wanted to be admired for his brilliant and daring plan. He wanted to be considered someone. So as I've said, the threat was taken seriously, and on the 31st of August 1988, the following message appeared in the personal columns of the Daily Telegraph. Sandra, happy birthday darling, want to help, must talk, telephone 0664 500 065. Love, John. Now, no telephone call was received as a result of this advertisement, but a second letter did arrive five weeks later. The blackmailer wasn't going to be drawn into making a telephone call that could be traced or recorded that might lead to his capture. In this letter, more evidence of the pre-planning was evident, as well as the length of time that the blackmailer had spent doing this. A list of account details for accounts at the Halifax Nationwide and Abbey National Building Societies had been sent, as well as the warning that the first £100,000 was to be paid in by the 1st of November 1988, 
or else the blackmailer would make good on the threat of contaminating pet food. The accounts had been opened in the names of John and Sandra Norman nearly two years before in September 1986, and all of the documentation, the cash cards and pin numbers, had been sent to a post office box in Hammersmith in West London. If the money was paid into these accounts, it would allow the blackmailer to withdraw up to £300 a day from any one of the thousands of automated teller machines nationwide. The names of John and Sandra Norman were investigated as leads, but unsurprisingly, nothing came of this. The blackmailer was far too smart to do something so obvious, really, as using a traceable name such as these. Needing to keep the correspondence, under police direction, further exchanges were entered into between the pedigree bosses and the blackmailer, again using the personal columns of the Daily Telegraph, and it was decided to make an initial payment into the Norman accounts. This would hopefully satiate the blackmailer's greed and keep him in contact whilst police hunted him. The longer he was corresponding, the more likely he was to make a mistake or leave a trace. So on the 28th of October 1988, a payment of £5,000 was paid into one of the Halifax accounts, and the waiting game was on to see if the blackmailer would be drawn out. They didn't have too long to wait. A week later, on the 4th of November at 9.29pm, the first withdrawal was made from a cash point in Reading in Berkshire. In quick succession over the following days, more withdrawals were made, but in no discernible locale or pattern. They were made as far north as Glasgow and as far south as Exeter, the trips to Wales, the Midlands and northeast and southeast of England in between. But by the time this initial payment had begun to dwindle and Pedigree were reluctant to feed more money into the accounts, this prompted the blackmailer to act. A supermarket in Basildon in Essex was telephoned on the 6th of December and informed by a male voice that a can of Pedigree chum had been contaminated. It was found and found to have been opened spiked with slivers of razor blade, and then resealed. Similar contaminated cans were also left in supermarkets in Royston in Hertfordshire and Hayford Hill in Oxfordshire, although these were also clearly marked and were alerted to by an anonymous telephone call. The amount of the ransom was also increased via a letter received by Pedigree Chum following this. It prompted Pedigree to again top up the Halifax accounts, and the pattern of withdrawals continued again almost daily. It was now noted that although the withdrawals were still made at widespread locations through the country, these were less frequent. Instead, the withdrawals now seemed to be focused around the southeast areas of London and Kent. It looked like somewhere in this area was the blackmailer's base of operations. So the obvious way to catch the blackmailer would be to catch him in the act withdrawing money from a cash point, but this was obviously as impossible as it sounded. It could literally be anywhere in the country and CCTV was nowhere near as widespread back in the late 80s as it is today. How could you hope to be in the right place at the right time? But it was something that had to be tried, because most of the withdrawals were made late at night when branches were closed, with no staff about and minimal risk of being spotted. It may just be possible that if these Halifax cash points were watched, the blackmailer may just show himself. Studying a plan of the withdrawals, the Halifax machines in the south of England were focused upon, and a massive team of detectives targeted as many individual points as could be possibly manned. Now this could only be stretched to cover on two days each week, a Monday and a Thursday, and from closing time until one o'clock in the morning. The surveillance operation continued throughout January and February 1989, at an estimated cost of a million pounds per week. 
and yet the blackmailer always seemed to be miles away when withdrawing. He was never in or even near any of the targeted areas. He'd certainly withdraw on the days in question that the machines were being watched, but always in places many miles away from the area the surveillance was blanketed upon. It seemed that he either had an uncanny sixth sense about danger and of self-preservation, or he was somehow aware of how police worked and thought, and was possibly even aware of the surveillance campaign. Did he have an inside contact within the police, or perhaps was he a police officer? It didn't bear thinking about, but the more it was considered, the more that it seemed a plausible theory. It would explain the blackmailer's knowledge of forensics and of how police operated, and if it was an officer or a source close to the investigation, then it would explain how the blackmailer knew how to avoid the surveillance each night, and the whole costly surveillance exercise would have been a complete waste of time. But this was just a theory, there was no proof to this whatsoever. By the start of March 1989, Operation Roach had been running for nearly seven months. The blackmailer had managed to withdraw more than £18,000 from the Halifax accounts, and the amount of the ransom demand had increased to one and a quarter million pounds. The number of contaminations had also been increased. There had been 14 different contaminations left at supermarkets across the country, either poisoned or with razor blades placed in them. Each one had been pre-warned and marked when it had been left in the store, and then Operation Roach stepped up into a different gear altogether. Someone on the investigation team, it was never revealed who, leaked the details of the up-to-then hush-hush police inquiry to a national newspaper. Against the advice of Leicestershire Police, the newspaper ran the story detailing the existence of the blackmail plot, details of the undercover operation and surveillance, and the fact that the target was a pet food company, although it wasn't named, although it may as well have been with things like that. And as a result, the blackmailer went to ground. There was no communication following this revelation, there were no more withdrawals of cash, and there were also no more contaminations. The leaking of the story had in effect killed off the undercover operation, but had the media spotlight scared the blackmailer off, and had he abandoned his campaign, or was he biding his time now? The answer came nearly three weeks later, on the 22nd of March. On the same day that Leicestershire Police received a package through the post, the worldwide food manufacturer H.J. Hines & Company received a letter, again a photocopy of a typed letter demanding £300,000. Failing this, the letter claimed that the company would be, I quote, irreversibly ruined after their entire product range has been attacked with the most lethal substances and boycotted by the public. There will have been many casualties before we finish with them. The letter went on to demand a similar correspondence through the personal columns of the Daily Telegraph. The package that Leicestershire Police had received contained a jar of Heinz cauliflower cheese baby food and this chilling note with it. It is now clear that there will be no payment until somebody suffers. This jar has been contaminated with poison. One spoonful to a three-month-old baby will render it in need of urgent medical attention. When Heinz pay up, that will be the end of the demands for all time. We will look for your entry, from Sandra to Bob, in the usual column on March the 27th. If there is no entry indicating, the accounts are each to be credited with £100,000. Then we will begin to the blackmailer had now targeted those that we hold dearest to us, children. 
When tested, the jar was indeed found to contain a substantial amount of caustic soda that would have caused severe internal injuries if swallowed. And now, because the undercover surveillance of machines had been called off, the cash withdrawals had begun again. But this time, in a new strategy, the Halifax computer was now programmed to seize the blackmailer's cash card the next time it was used. It was unlikely, given his forensic awareness, but it was possible that forensic traces may be gleaned from it. At 9.45pm on the 28th of March 1989, this card was used in Chelmsford in Essex, and the machine swallowed it. But nothing, when the card was later examined, there was no forensic evidence or discernible fingerprints to be gleaned from it. All this exercise did serve was to draw a response from the blackmailer, again in the form of a letter to Leicestershire Police. Much shorter than any previous correspondence, it was a direct response to the card having been seized. The blackmailer was angry, he thought that the police weren't playing the game how he wanted, and would soon find out just how seriously its contents were. The letter simply said, You have now forced me to put poison on the shelves. On the 8th of April 1989, a farmer's wife from the market town of Raleigh in Essex bought a number of jars of baby food from the local Sainsbury supermarket in the town, ironically not to feed a baby, but to feed a litter of newborn puppies. As she was opening the jar to give to the puppies, some of the contents spilled onto her hand, and instantly she felt a burning sensation on her skin, and noticed a foul and pungent chemical smell that made her eyes water and sting. Horrified, she looked into the jar and saw two drawing pins, as well as a dymo tape message saying, Poison. Three more unmarked jars in the store. So police were contacted straight away, and the store where the baby food had been bought was informed, and the shelves there were cleared of Heinz products. As the message had said, three more jars of contaminated baby food were found when doing so. Upon examination by forensic experts, it was found that each jar contained enough level of sodium hydroxide, or caustic soda as is more commonly known, to kill a human child 27 times over. 27 times over. Unbelievable, eh? Two days later, a mother in Cowley near Oxford, Helen Coppock, was feeding her nine-month-old baby daughter some yoghurt that she'd purchased in the local Safeway store there when she noticed what appeared to be shavings of metal in the pot. She then noticed that her daughter appeared to be chewing something and when looking into her mouth noticed that her daughter had a piece of metal on her tongue. When it was removed, it looked like a piece of razor blade that had cut her mouth, so the lady took her daughter to the nearest A&E department for examination, but apart from a slight scratch inside the mouth, the child was found to be okay. Whilst waiting for her daughter to be examined, Helen noticed a dymo tape message inside the pot, which said, Poison also in Heinz beans and soup. In both cases, it was fortunate that the product had been bought that day, the stores in question were contacted and the shelves were immediately cleared of Heinz products. Again, more contaminated products were found, and again with the same levels that had been found in Raleigh. So this prompted the blackmail plot to explode into the headlines now. I mean, targeting beloved pets is horrific enough, but targeting children? This is just something else. So because it was so widely reported now, the story snowballed, and of course with it came the usual cranks and hoaxes. Within 24 hours of the story hitting the headlines, the number of reported contaminations had risen to more than 40. Two days after this, the number had risen to 300 reported cases. Not just exclusive to Heinz by now, but also its rival company, Cowan Gate, 
and police believed that the blackmailer was responsible for just two of these cases, the ones that had been clearly marked and flagged up in the by now familiar way that the blackmailer operated. Three people were arrested and charged for wasting police time and money following this, quite rightly so for anyone who jumps on the back of something like this, either to get attention or to try to make easy money. Absolute parasites. This did have a knock-on effect to Heinz. It led to the production of the tamper-proof jars that we have today, but of course this took time to manufacture and distribute, and the first such jars were not in supermarkets until the 15th of May. It led to many stores boycotting Heinz products, both in the UK and in the US, and the company was reported to have lost £25 million in a single week. It was even reported later that a possible solution to the crisis considered at the time was to close the entire UK operation of Heinz, which would have resulted in the loss of 5,000 jobs. It was a serious consideration and was only political intervention that stopped it from going ahead. Meanwhile, Heinz played hardball and refused to give in to the blackmailers' demands. Senior executives from Heinz gave interviews to the press, condemning the blackmailers as thugs and terrorists, and vowing that they would not pay any money to people attacking the most vulnerable sections of our society, the young. There was a £100,000 reward offered for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the blackmailer, and in response to this price on his head, the blackmailer stepped up his campaign. Anonymous telephone calls were made to supermarkets and the media, warning of contaminations that were forthcoming, and the tone of the letters changed to much more cold and threatening. One received by Hines read in part, You should know by now that we do not bluff. An infant's death will just be another statistic as far as we're concerned, but at least we will not be ignored. Babies will not be able to inform their parents that the product does not have its normal flavour. Their systems are also much less resilient. See what I mean? Callous and cold that or what, isn't it? The ransom demand was again increased. Instead of the one-off £300,000, the blackmailer now wanted £250,000 each year over five years. And by the end of June 1989, seven more cases of contamination were found in supermarkets clustered around the east and southeast coasts of Britain. This gave further weight to the theory that the blackmailer was operating from a base somewhere in this area. With each case, warnings were made through telephone calls to the local police and the store in question and therefore injury was avoided, although in one case there was a close shave when a woman who had bought a can of Heinz Weight Watchers Minestrone Soup heard the news about possible contamination of Heinz products at the store she had bought it from. She was just about to tuck into it as well when she noticed the chemical smell and took it to police. An examination found it was laced with a dose of caustic soda that was more than five times the lethal dose for an adult. I can imagine that a close shave like that may make you lose weight in a different way really. The blackmailer contacted Hines again on the 5th of September and this time he had a new tack. He was pretending to be another party. A letter filled with grammatical and spelling errors and stenciled instead of typewritten was received. By now, police and Hines knew their man, and this letter was a deliberate attempt by the blackmailer to appear as some sort of illiterate supergrass and to gain a bigger sum as a one-off payment. In the letter, the author claimed that he knew the identity of the blackmailer, but that he couldn't identify the person because the blackmailer was a bent cop but for £50,000 he would tell all. To prove the authenticity of his claims, 
The letter contained intimate details of the police operation hunting the blackmailer and names of the most senior officers involved. He required money to again be paid into Woolwich and National and Provincial Building Society accounts, this time ones that had been opened in the names of Ian and Nina Fox. Correspondence would be in the now standard method via personal columns, this time using the code names Charlie and Dawn. There now could be no doubt that the blackmailer was either a police officer or had some sort of inside knowledge of the investigation. So to counter this, a covert investigation within the investigation, codenamed Operation Agincourt, was launched, staffed by a selected few trusted officers and a contingency from Special Branch. It was hoped that the blackmailer would only know details of Operation Roach, and this other investigating team may be able to get closer to the blackmailer without his knowledge. They reasoned that the best chance would again be by monitoring the cash points where the blackmailer was making withdrawals from, and by surveilling them with officers working under the Agincourt operation, the blackmailer would not know which were being watched, and so couldn't avoid them. The Fox accounts were stocked with cash, and then an advert was placed, as per instructed by the blackmailer, again in the Daily Telegraph. The advert read, Charlie, agreed, will provide some help soonest, now help me, done. £19,000 was paid into the accounts, and the daily withdrawals began again the day after the advert had appeared. These continued again periodically from across the country, but more often than not centred on the south or southeast of the country, and more often than not out of these in London. By the 13th of October, the money was fast disappearing at the maximum withdrawal rate each day, and the commander of Operation Agincourt, Deputy Assistant Commissioner Simon Crawshaw, mounted another surveillance operation, confident now that the blackmailer would have no idea that these machines would be being watched. Fifteen Woolwich machines in and around the areas of London were selected to be watched, and the surveillance began again. If the target cash card was used, Agincourt would be informed instantly, and with luck, a surveillance team would be on top of the blackmailer and would catch him in the act. For a week, there was nothing. Withdrawals still happened, but from cash points that weren't being watched. But just after midnight on the 20th of October, police got a break. A cash point in Argyle Road in Enfield was being surveilled by two detectives from Special Branch when a red Peugeot car parked up nearby. A well-built, grey-haired, bearded man got out of the car carrying a white crash helmet and as he walked towards the cash point, he placed the crash helmet on. As he reached the cash point, he found it was out of order and began to retrace his steps back to the car. The watching officers, seeing this suspicious behaviour, decided to move in. As the man was just getting back into the car, the two detectives challenged him and informed him that they had reason to believe he was involved in serious crime and he was going to be subject to a search. In the first jacket pocket that the police officer checked was a Woolwich cashpoint card bearing the name Ian and Nina Fox. The man replied, No problem guys, I know what this is about, but I am innocent. He then dropped to the floor in a dead faint. The blackmailer was caught. He was identified as 43-year-old Rodney Wichello, an ex-police officer who up until 1987 had worked on the regional crime squad at Barkinside, and so was well known to many of the shocked detectives working on Operation Roach. A native Londoner, Wichello had been born in Hackney in 1947, and after passing six O-levels in school, had joined the electronics firm Plessy at age 20. Within nine years, he had worked his way into the position of electronics engineer grade one. 
but he became disillusioned with what he perceived as his lack of progress here and he opted for a new challenge. In 1976, he joined the Metropolitan Police and proved to be an excellent recruit, top of his graduating class at Hendon Police Training College, and this followed early in his career when he rapidly passed the sergeant's exam. Richello seemed destined for good things within the police, and in 1982 he was even involved in the high-profile inquiry as to how disturbed individual Michael Fagan was able to access Buckingham Palace and make his way to the Queen's bedroom unchallenged. Soon after this, Wichello joined the regional crime squad at Barkinside, but then his career stalled. He steadily became disillusioned with the police. His belief was that he was a good candidate for promotion and was head and shoulders above his colleagues, yet he'd been overlooked constantly for advancement because he wasn't a Freemason. In 1986, Wichello was sent on a training course to study advanced police techniques for surveillance work and one of the case studies used in the training course was the details of an extortion attempt made against Norfolk poultry magnate Bernard Matthews. In this, 23-year-old microbiologist William Freire had some years before threatened to place poisoned poultry in supermarkets until the Matthews company handed over £50,000. Freire was traced when he attempted to collect the ransom money and he was caught and imprisoned for six years. This was the seed that formed a plot in Wichello's mind. He had all of the details of the plan in front of him, and he believed that he could improve upon it. Freire had kept his withdrawals confined to a limited area and was traced through this. By casting a wider net with more accounts, there was less chance of capture, and especially if you could keep track of any investigations because you're a police officer. After his course, Wichello had returned to the home he shared with his widowed mother in Hornchurch in Essex and began opening the Building Society accounts in the names of John and Sandra Norman. He spent the next two years refining his plan, practising the art of opening cans, contaminating them and resealing them until he had it down to a fine art. He rehearsed his letters and researched the best way to correspond in plain sight, opting for the Daily Telegraph personal columns. He also created the codenames and cryptic messages to go into these. By the summer of 1988, Wichello felt ready to put his plan into action and he sent the initial letter to John Simmons at Pedigree Pet Foods. He was still a serving detective sergeant at the time. Following the letter being sent and the response being placed in the Daily Telegraph, Wichello applied for retirement on the grounds of ill health due to an existing back complaint, which was accepted, and this now afforded Wichello time to travel the country, withdrawing money from the building society accounts that he had opened. Once he had left the police, Wichello still maintained contact with his former colleagues, drinking in the same pubs as them, he even went to their Christmas party in 1988. Perhaps half of this was to maintain friendships with colleagues, but equally it afforded Wichello a chance to track the progress of Operation Roach, his own blackmail plot. His former colleagues, who still considered him to be one of the lads and a trusted ex-colleague, thought nothing of taking him into their confidence and over drinks unwittingly gave away details of the investigation into the blackmail plot. This helped Wichello stay one step ahead of the investigation, and it was how he knew to avoid the surveillance. On one occasion, he had even sat chatting in the backseat of the car of two of his former colleagues who were surveilling a cash point, waiting for the blackmailer to make a withdrawal. Cheeky bastard, what? A search of the home which Allo shared with his widowed mother in Hornchurch brought a plethora of evidence linked to the extortion plot. 
They were large quantities of rat poison and caustic soda, pieces of razor blade that matched the pieces that baby Victoria Coppock had nearly swallowed. There was a quantity of drills and soldering equipment, and a dot matrix printer that when examined was found to have been the source of some of the initial blackmail letters that were sent. An examiner of Wichello's movements also found that he could be placed in the areas throughout the country on the day where building society withdrawals were made, having travelled to the area for sexual liaisons. Wichello was aroused by domination games and bondage, and he was constantly seeking like-minded women for sexual hookups, for which he'd travel the length of the country. On these trips he'd kill two birds with one stone, and make withdrawals in the areas he was in, further distancing himself from any capture. Wichello knew how police interrogation and questioning techniques worked, and he refused to say pretty much anything when questioned, but once his home was searched, he quickly knew that the game was up. Arrogant and overconfident, he'd never planned on getting caught, and his perfect crime, with 17 contaminations linked to him and extortion demands that totaled nearly £4 million, had ultimately netted him just £32,000. He was charged with 18 offences of blackmail, food contamination, making threats to kill and of obtaining money by deception, and was remanded in custody to await trial. Wichello's trial began at London's Old Bailey Court in October 1990, to which he pleaded not guilty. He claimed throughout the three-month trial that he had been set up by a consortium of senior Metropolitan Police detectives who had hatched the blackmail plot themselves and had then blackmailed him into acting as their collector. However, he could give no names and no evidence to support his claims, and as a result, the jury did not believe him in the slightest. Convicted on 11 of the charges against him, Wichello was sentenced to 17 years imprisonment, with Miss Justice Lowry telling him, Your blackmail letters show the evil side of your nature. Wichello served eventually just eight years of his sentence and he was released in August 1998. Following his release, he returned to the house in Hornchurch where he had lived with his mother and three months following his release, the baby food blackmailer gave an interview to the press where he pleaded his forgiveness and expressed his remorse, saying, I think I have atoned. I would condemn anyone who commits such crimes. It is dreadfully upsetting and I am very, very sorry. How do you apologise to a nation? I have tried to answer what possessed me to the authorities. It happened. I was convicted. I have served my time and paid my dues. I want to carry on with an ordinary life. How can you demonstrate that I would never commit a similar crime? You can only do it through behaviour. I am trying to lead an honest life. I have my own computer firm and I am trying to avoid any publicity. I know I am not going to do anything like that, but my saying so doesn't necessarily satisfy the public. To this day, there is no record of Wichello ever having offended again. His case did lead to several changes throughout many aspects connected with it. For example, it changed the way the bank and building society accounts were opened and it led to more restriction upon opening these with proof of identification being necessary. It's already been told how it led to the now commonplace tamper-proof packaging that groceries now come in and it led to changes in the strategy of the method police use when investigating attempts at extortion. In part, due to the implementation of measures such as these, and lessons learned from the case, plus developments in forensics and technology, there has never to date been a successful case of extortion against a company in the UK that the extortionist has not ultimately been stopped in and captured.
there have been several attempts and a number of which we may potentially meet in future episodes of the show. But it is not always with financial gain in mind that an individual may blackmail or extort. There may be personal reasons as well, such as a sexual motive. The second case to be featured this week tells the story of one such individual, and one who is an extremely nasty piece of work indeed. Now as I outlined at the start of the episode, this part of the episode contains explicit descriptions of sadism and abusive sexual language that some listeners may find disturbing or offensive. I make apologies for the use of this, and I of course do not wish to deliberately offend, but it is necessary to reproduce here exactly so you get the context of the accounts that I'm making. With that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiasts as we look back at the case of the Gatwick blackmailer. Now airport security nowadays has undergone such a change since the end of the Second World War that most UK airports now have their own police forces and stations. Apart from today's predominant operational requirement and necessity of an armed police response to deal with any threats to security and well-being, Police airports may also deal with more minor and mundane tasks, such as investigating instances of baggage theft, cases of air rage, or the usual day-to-day trivialities police officers face. But at the end of November 1997, the CID Department of Britain's second largest international airport, Gatwick, in southeast England, were faced with something out of the ordinary for them. An attractive blonde stewardess in her mid-thirties arrived at Gatwick Airport Police Station in a state of clear distress and placed on a desk the following letter that she had received whilst at work. Now the name of the recipient has been left out here and will be referred to as X, but the letter is otherwise reproduced verbatim. Dear X, You don't know me, but I know you quite well. I'm unemployed, but make a little delivering things in my van. I've not had a girlfriend for five years. I've decided I'm having you. You must do the following. Go to a professional photographic studio dressed in your full uniform, including gloves, handbag, stockings, suspenders and high heels. Brown. I want 40 pictures in gloss colour, 10 by 8, so I can see your tits with your skirt on but pulled up. No knickers, clear views between your legs. See diagrams. If you don't comply... Next year, at some stage, when it is safe for me, I will throw concentrated sulfuric acid in your face. I will not stay around to watch your flesh melt off. I will get you, no question. No more chances, no more warnings. You can't hide, and if the pictures aren't there by December the 12th, that's it. If I can't see you, no one else would ever want to once I've done my job next year. Do yours, and you won't need to look over your shoulder all year. By the way... You will probably be blinded too, unless you are lucky. This horrifying message also contained with it disgusting and explicit hand-drawn sketches of the poses that the author wanted the woman to adopt in the photographs, as well as detailed instruction about how to specifically package the pictures and where to leave them. The location being a ditch by a sign on a minor road near one of the runways at Gatwick Airport. Now as you can imagine... This letter frightened the woman beyond belief. It is absolutely horrific, isn't it? If anyone's ever received an anonymous threatening letter, then they'll know just how much they can unsettle and frighten. Detectives started an investigation, and although the letter was postmarked from 20 miles away in Kingston-upon-Thames, they theorised that the author was someone who was employed at or connected with the airport in some way. 
they discreetly began looking at the woman's male colleagues for a possible suspect, and they subjected the letter and envelope to forensic examination for fingerprints or traces of DNA. All fingerprints found on the letter and envelope were run through fingerprint databases, but no match was found on any files. There was no obvious suspect found either. Needless to say, the frightened woman didn't comply with the writer's demands, and the deadline of December the 12th passed without incident. Still in fear, she described later how it made her paranoid and suspicious of everyone by saying, Everybody that I came across, I started thinking that, were they the person who'd sent me the letter? I used to look at their handwriting to see if it matched the letter. I was accusing everybody, everybody. The same woman then received another letter at work on the 12th of February 1998, written in the same handwriting and again in the format of capital letters, simply saying, You have nothing to fear now, nothing will happen. Speculating that the author had gotten wind of the police investigation and had backed off, there was little more that detectives could do, except wait to see if the author wrote again. For nearly a year, there were no further developments. Then just after Christmas 1998, a second frightened woman came into Gatwick Airport Police Station with another disturbing and disgusting letter. It had again been posted in Kingston-upon-Thames, and the recipient was again a blonde woman in her early 30s who worked on the ticket reservation staff at the airport. This time, the author of the letter had switched to referring to himself in the plural. Again, the name of the recipient has been removed here and substituted with X. Dear X, we need your uniform for a film. If you don't supply it, then we will take it. We will find out a bit about you, and then when the time is right and you are off guard, we will take it, even if you are wearing it. We will also take one of your fingers for making things difficult for us. Don't be a fuck, X. Make life easy for all of us. You know everything can be forgot. The letter also contained the same detailed drop-off instructions and location as the previous letter. The recipient of the second letter also didn't comply with these demands, and although the first inquiry was again looked at, there was no arrest and it did not advance the investigation further. There was no follow-up letter this time, and things again went quiet. But then in April 1999, the letter writer was back. The third recipient was a colleague of the first recipient, and was the now familiar pattern again of a blonde female stewardess in her early 30s. This time, the letter had been posted at Gatwick Airport itself, and the writer had drawn up a list of forfeits for the recipient. He again wanted a uniform, and it was to again be left in the same spot as before. As with the previous letters, the demands were ignored, and a follow-up letter a month later contained the threat that upon non-compliance, the writer would place an obscene picture of the recipient online. The recipient, like the first victim, had been photographed for the airline's promotional literature, and the writer threatened to graft her picture onto an image of a woman masturbating with a wine bottle. It would then be placed on a website with a message for people to telephone her airline asking for the cabin crew performance manager, and to detail which obscene and degrading acts they wished for her to perform. The fourth, and what turned out to be the final recipient of the Gatwick blackmailer, also worked for the same airline that victims 1 and 3 worked for, but this time was brown-haired and was only 22 years of age. The letter had also been sent just a day after the follow-up letter to the third victim, which alarmed police. This man was becoming bolder and was stepping up his correspondence. He was also becoming much more perverted. 
The letter to the fourth victim again talked of a forfeit system upon non-compliance, but as with what was becoming a common pattern with the author, he used a slightly different approach from the previous letters. Dear X, I was on your flight once and I managed to find out who you were. I waited for days outside the car parks to get a few pictures of you. I thought you saw me, did you? I think about you all the time as I don't have too long to live. I've sold my house, given up my job and decided to go out fulfilling every fantasy I've had and doing whatever I want. All in all, I'm your worst nightmare. Before I die, I will throw acid over you. It's so strong nobody will ever recognise you again. Here is task one. Write me a letter. Describe your breasts and how you masturbate. The letter also contained a threat that non-compliance would result in a picture of her being posted online with her face grafted onto that of a woman with a frog in her vagina. This would be accompanied by an invitation to call a number and to ask for private shows of the victim with a manner of objects inserted into her vagina and anus. The fourth victim was so traumatised by this letter that after reporting it, she quit her job and moved away from the area. So Gatwick police now had four victims of what was undoubtedly the same man, but the investigation was at a standstill. When using an offender profiler was suggested, the officer heading the inquiry, Detective Inspector Steve Johns, opted to try it. On the 23rd of June 1999, D.I. Johns, D.C. John Ashby and crime analyst Samantha Thompson travelled up to Leicester University to meet their National Crime Faculty recommended criminal profiler, Dr. Julian Boone. Dr. Boone was a psychology lecturer who was a veteran of more than 400 criminal profiles the length and breadth of the country, and it was fortuitous that they were seeing Dr. Boone. As he read out the contents of the first letter received, Dr. Boone exclaimed that he recognised the content as being an exact replica of that of an offender he had seen before. Dr. Boone then described a case he had worked on in Sutton in South London in mid-1998, where a 17-year-old shop worker had received a threatening letter telling her to dress as an air stewardess and have pornographic pictures of herself taken. This victim had received much more vicious and intimidating content in the letters to her, describing how he would damage her over a prolonged period of time and going into explicit detail about crushing her nipples with pliers and removing her teeth one by one. What convinced Boone that this writer was the same offender as the Gatwick blackmailer were the similarities between each case. A high sadistic content, drawings contained with each letter detailing how the victim should pose for example, a specific instruction of how to package the content and where to drop the package off as well as a requirement for 40 copies of each picture. So Boone then considered the profile of the offender. The offender was likely a male in the older age bracket and was unlikely to be married with children or even in a conventional relationship. He was very likely a loner, computer literate and technologically minded with an interest in machinery. There was also a possibility that the offender may have some form of disfigurement as acid and disfiguring featured strongly in his letters. Dr Boone agreed with the police that the writer would work at the airport as the lure of being around his particular fetish would be too difficult for him to resist. Now it may be a low level job but that didn't mean that the offender was unintelligent. He considered the offender to be heavily into anal sadism and was an offender who would gain thrills from the humiliation and degradation of the victim. Boone estimated that the offender would be heavily into pornography 
particularly relating to air hostesses as this was his particular bent and likely having clothing or paraphernalia related to that of air hostesses at his home. There was also the likelihood that the offender had written many more such letters to other victims which may have been dismissed and to not have been reported. The fact that he had contacted three of the four victims twice gave the opinion that the author was a writer rather than a doer. None of the threats contained in the letters had ever been carried out. The offender gained his kicks from purely writing the letters with every word giving him deep satisfaction. He would also find it irresistible to visit the drop-off location described in the letters. In the words of Dr Boone himself, he will be getting off on constructing that letter. Every line is just causing him to drip mentally with sexual elation. Detectives from Gatwick then liaised with the investigating officers who had worked on the Sutton case, and what they learned made them convinced that Dr Boone was correct in his theory that the offender would visit the drop-off location. The drop-off location detailed in the Sutton letters had been surveilled by officers on the inquiry for two days covering one of the dates detailed by the author as a drop-off date in one of the letters. Now no package had been left of course, but no one had turned up either. When the operation had been stood down, officers had left an empty bag and envelope at the scene to see the results. Shortly afterwards, the Sutton victim had received a letter asking her if she was trying to trick him with empty bags. So it was clear that the offender had visited the scene at some point, even though the surveillance had failed to spot him. So encouraged by this, Detective Inspector Johns opted to put into action a round-the-clock surveillance operation upon the drop-off location in the country lane near the airport that had been specified in many of the letters. A bag of clothing was deposited at the scene, a concealed video camera was installed that could observe the location, and two teams of officers hid a short distance either side of the location. On a Monday morning in mid-July 1999, the operation began, so would the offender take the bait? For nearly three full days, police sat in wait but with nothing happening. But then, at nearly 11 o'clock at night, on the 14th of July 1999, the bag was collected. A car was observed stopping, and when the camera footage was later examined, the vehicle's headlights were seen to illuminate the scene. A person's silhouette could then be seen exiting the vehicle, going right to the bag and then returning to the vehicle before driving off the way that the car had approached from. The driver was stopped a short distance from the scene and the bag was found on the front seat of the car. He was arrested and brought into custody at Gatwick where he was interviewed in the presence of a solicitor. The explanation the driver gave for being at the scene was described by DC Ashby. His explanation was that he'd been working on his house all day long and had decided to go for a walk sometime after 10 o'clock that evening. He parked his car nearby in a country lane walked across a couple of fields and then stumbled across this bag which he believed was rubbish or possibly a dead animal because he'd found a dead badger stuffed in a black bag like that once before. So because he liked the countryside and didn't want to see any rubbish lying about, he returned to his car, drove back to the scene and put the supposed bag on the front seat so he could dispose of it at his home address. The man arrested at the scene was Keith Downer, a 40-year-old British Airways engineer who lived near Redhill in Surrey and who worked on the B-shift short-haul line maintenance at Gatwick Airport. Downer was bailed following his interview, but allowed officers to take his fingerprints before he left the station. Within a few days, Downer's fingerprints were found to be a match to outstanding fingerprints on two of the blackmail letters. He was re-arrested and exercised his right not to comment when this evidence was put to him.
coupled with being in possession of the bag of clothing that was left as bait, and the unlikely explanation Downer had given for being in the lane at the time, it was enough to charge him. Five months later, when the case came before Chichester Crown Court in December 1999, Downer pleaded guilty to eight counts of blackmail, including the Sutton offences. He was sentenced to eight years imprisonment, which however was halved to four years at a court of appeal hearing in autumn 2000. Downer's victims were understandably extremely upset by this, as you can well imagine, I mean, someone does something so horrendous to you, makes you feel so scared like that. You want the book thrown at them, really, don't you? Downer's family, his partner, friends and work colleagues were all shocked beyond belief when they heard of his complicity in the offences. He was of average height, dark brown hair and described as reasonably good looking. He was divorced but had a regular girlfriend. He had a good well-paid job, had no previous convictions or police record and was considered a pleasant, normal, hard-working person by all of those who knew him. Now this went against many of the points that Dr Boone had made in his profile of the offender, yet Downer matched several points of the profile also. He did have a sexual fetish for air stewardesses, he did work at the airport, and he was of the older end of the offending scale. He also lived alone, and he also had visited the drop scene, as predicted. No stewardess uniform or paraphernalia was found at Downer's house, but both Dr Boone and police remained convinced that there was a stash somewhere hidden just at a location that they didn't know. When he was interviewed for a television documentary series that featured the case not long after Downer's conviction, Dr Boone admitted that he had made a mistake in three areas of the profile, the offender's appearance, his work status and relationship with a woman. Boone went on to explain that the reason he had missed this was that because Downer had been what is known as staging, the offender had deliberately presented himself as something other than what he actually was. In the Gatwick blackmailer case, this was not to obscure the identity of the offender as would be the common reason, but more to increase the level of terror and discomfort for the victims. Boone outlined the need to research Downer's life, to look at his upbringing and relationships, particularly his previous sex life, to try to pinpoint exactly where and when the extreme sadism that was Downer's sexual proclivity stemmed from. Boone remained convinced that Downer was more of a writer than a doer, and that this bent would never change. It just remained to be seen if Downer would be able to keep his urges under control upon release from prison. Now Downer is long released from prison by now, and it remains to be seen. Has he managed to keep his fantasies under control, or has he started writing letters again? Scary stuff, eh? I didn't realise just how common threats such as these were. As in the case of Wichello, almost every company gets threats like these, and they are just that, threats. Just angry, pissed off people wanting to hear their grievances in some sort of twisted way, give themselves a thrill and make themselves feel better. The majority of these are seen for the empty threats that they are, and dismissed, but occasionally, there may just be that particular one that comes along that isn't an empty threat, and it does actually mean what they put. Now I must stress again that this has only happened a handful of times, and in a future episode, some other cases of extortion attempts will be recounted. But Downer, however, what a piece of work he is, eh? There's no record of his status now, where he is or what he's doing. He'll be nearing retirement age by now. If, of course, he is still alive, that is. I do believe that barring a miracle that revolutionised his sexual preference whilst he was in prison, and regardless of any psychological assumption that he is a writer rather than a doer, 
the lengths he had already started to go to to enrich a fantasy, the vocab and language he was using in his letters to victims. This is already a very dangerous man indeed, and I think what floats his boat will always float his boat. For him it was obviously stewardesses and extreme sadism, and if he hadn't been stopped, I believe that he would have gone a bit further each time to enrich his fantasies. And that only has one endgame really, doesn't it? And he's been out for many years now. What do you think? Has the lore of it proved too much for him to resist? And is he at it again? Hope that you guys have enjoyed this week's episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. They are both cases that I've wanted to cover on the show for a while now. They fit the bill to the content that we like really, obscure and a bit different. I've never wanted it to be a murder of the week kind of show really but it does become difficult to try to make an entertaining and informative episode out of a supermarket robbery or a car theft and sometimes you've got to search out for stuff a bit different please feel free to get in touch to let me know your thoughts on the episode this week be it on facebook twitter or on the discussion thread up now in the facebook discussion group Reviews of the show are also always welcomed on any platform and are always taken into account good or bad That's about it from me for another week and I shall be back next Thursday with another episode, this time featuring a case from my home area of North Wales. I hope that you guys can join me then for it. Until then, I've been Paul, the true crime enthusiast, and I wish you all a safe week and I shall speak to you soon. Thanks very much for joining me today guys, take care and goodbye for now.